The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Matt Caruso, uh, who's got a really interesting uh, background. I'm curious to hear about this um, investing championship, Matt. But introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? How to get involved? Interested in markets? And what are you doing currently? Sure. Perfect. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on, Michael. I really appreciate it. Uh, so I'm a professional investor. I've uh, Basically, it's all, it's all I've ever done coming out of university. Uh, I started as a market maker and pro trader for one of the big banks. I uh, did that for about six, seven years. Then after, went to a smaller shop and then ultimately went on my own. I've been just trading my own capital since about 2014, which has been a lot of fun. Um, 2020, I joined the U.S. Investing Championship and uh, that, I guess, you know, helped to bring a little uh, more attention, I guess, to my Twitter following, which grew since then. And I had a good year, finished with a 346% return. And uh, from there, I, I started kind of a, a masterclass a video course to explain my process of investing, and I have a, uh, a subscription offering where I discuss the markets in real time. And so I'm kind of split my time between uh, actively trading and uh, and running some of the uh, memberships uh, with my uh, day to day. So that's uh, markets are my life, and uh, my life is the markets. That's what I do. And a lot of people reference the U.S. Investing Championship. Is that is that um, actual trading, or is it more like a, a paper portfolio type trading? No, so it's actual trading. Um, it's a it goes back to the '80s. Uh, I didn't end up winning that year. I, I broken the nine month record going back to the eighties, but uh, at the end of the year, I took my foot off the gas when things went a little more vertical. Um, but no, it's a real, real money championship. So that was that was my uh, that was my actual trading account that I ran. So um, yeah. So since you mentioned twenty twenty, I'm going to make the assumption that you may have played a lot of sort of you know areas that kind of really rocketed off of the COVID low. Mm-hmm. But talk through to the audience, um, just from your experience, what does it take to get outsized returns? Because let's face it, you know, diversification is not going to do it. You've got to be somewhat concentrated, um, and that has its own risks. Absolutely. So, I mean, if, if you're going for outsized returns, it's always a risk-reward. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm an active investor. I'm an active trader. For years, I day traded. But my uh, introduction to the markets was with a book, How to Make Money in Stocks by William O'Neill, where he discusses growth stocks and growth investing. And so I always kind of ran both. One of the great things about when I started my position at the bank was as long as I was within risk protocols with overnight risk, et cetera, like I could pretty much do whatever I wanted. I mean, my manager was really open for that. So I always basically allocated all of my overnight risk essentially to like growth investing. So I always kind of ran both strategies in parallel. But a few years back, I decided to do just that. But um, outsized returns are possible. It's great. I've had, I've had many, you know, uh, triple digit years. Uh, but, you know, like with anything else, there's going to be periods where you underperform. It's, it's not most people who are benchmarking against indexes. It's kind of like closet indexing. You're playing with some factors. So you're always around the index return. I could have periods where I vastly outperform the indexes, other periods of time where, like so far this year, where I'm, you know, treading water and the QQQ is up nice. So uh, it, it's definitely, you have to be in, in the mindset much less that you're just an investor trying to mimic market returns. You have to be much more in the mindset of you're running a business and you're running a strategy. So like I, I always tell people, you know, if you open up a store in your local neighborhood, you're not going to benchmark yourself against like U.S. GDP. You say, hey, you know, U.S. GDP is up like three and a half percent this year. And no, I mean, you're running your business. You can do vastly better than the general economy or you can crash and burn. So um, when you get into the, the arena of active investing, that's that's pretty much what it's like. So, so take us through <clears throat> trading uh, in 2020, how you got those returns. First of all, what, did you start at, at January? Was it 
you know, after the COVID lows, where where did that start? So it was from beginning of the year, so January 1st, right to the end of the year. And uh, the way that worked is, you know, one thing I should really try and focus on uh, is avoiding bear markets. So like, thankfully, I started trading pro in 2008. I've never been caught in a, in a bad bear market. So I started the year well. I had a couple of good trades. Wasn't up a ton. I think it was up like 20% or something going into when COVID started to happen. Uh, but I got to cash. And so that was that was probably, was probably the best move was buying at the right time. But the second best move was definitely avoiding that drop because it kept me in the mindset and it kept my capital protected so that I was able to kind of go risk on. Uh, so I, I like to always draw, although like um, I kind of began my career more of a technical analyst. I, I've always loved economic history, fundamentals. So I, I'm both a CFA and a CMT just because I wanted to learn. And my my uh, undergrads in economics, so I have a little touch of everything. Um, but you know, I always try and pull back the parallels of other other points in time where fundamentals had a similar kind of viewpoint. So when COVID happened, and I was just seeing the response of the Fed and all this. I said to myself, "This is going to be, it's going to be a war. It's going to be kind of like a, a health war in a sense against this thing." And so I was looking at parallels of like World War One, where back then it was obviously a, a physical war. And the steel stocks went vertical. So I said, I need to have like direct exposure to everything that will directly benefit or supply this uh, war effort, I, I guess you can say. And so it was just, you know, the right tools, looking at the right places and, and things went vertical is a great market. So um, that's how I basically was able to put in that performance without taking the drawdown of uh, the COVID crash. Talk about um, opportunity set. What what are some of the things that you would trade? You mentioned the queues just a minute ago, as far as this year. But back in 2020, what is it you were you were trading around? So for me, it, it could really uh, it could really move around. So when I when I was trading pro and, and day trading, I was very uh, like industry specific. So I was always basically the same 10, 15 stocks traded all the time, and I got to know the character. That was it was very much kind of like more uh, instrument specific. Uh, like the methodology I use now where I'm basically looking for kind of the best growth stocks in the right environment, it's, it's you know, I'll definitely move along along different industry lines. So uh, it's basically you're looking for the you know key factors of, uh, of growth stocks. But that's not enough because, you know, it doesn't take a genius to run an equity screen and say, oh, these stocks have good earnings growth or good sales growth. It, it's... It's understanding also what environment they're going to operate in, they're going to they're going to work well in, what environments they're not going to work well in, and that's kind of where the skill comes in. Or else, it seems, I mean, what makes Warren Buffett a great value investor? Yeah, anyone can, can can bring up a PE ratio or a price to book or however you want to you know uh, describe value. It's it's knowing when to to have the right, uh, especially when you're running an active strategy, when to have the right kind of size on, when to be aggressive, when to be conservative, uh, how to avoid overtrading. Like this is a market for me, like the current market, this is my biggest fear. Uh, and, and thankfully I've been able to avoid the, the chop because again, I've never been caught bad in a bad bear market, but uh, in choppy markets, losses come at you 10 times faster than than gains will. And, and you can just chop yourself to pieces. So the thing is, those same equity factors will show you great stocks, even in this environment, and some will get ahead. So it's deceiving. You say, well, you know, look, the queues are up or or these stocks are up, but you have to look at your actual opportunity set. And, and if you can't really off, like you know, uh, truthfully narrow that down to say these are the best five stocks, then understand your risk is like if I can't really narrow it down, like my risk of just getting chopped day in and day out is very high. And so a big part of what I've done over time is kind of focusing on when not only are what are the right companies, but what's the right time, the right environment to execute. But yeah, the, the narrower the number of stocks that you want to focus on, obviously the potentially higher risk, because if you're only playing with a select number of stocks, you know, it's gonna be a larger portfolio weighting, right? So talk about how mm -hmm. do you how do you think about weighting and outsized returns? I go back to if you want outsized returns, right. you've got to have some kind of concentrated bet, but you don't want to be too concentrated to the point of you know, blow up. Yeah. So, yeah, sorry. I think I went a little bit off on a tangent on that last question, but you're right. Uh, and that is something where I think people need to have their own personal risk tolerance for. So for me, I'm very comfortable being concentrated. I can have 40, 50% of my account in one stock. It doesn't bother me. I, I Now, the way I get around that to kind of somewhat alleviate risk because someone will say, what, 40% of the stock that you're out of your mind. So I don't put 40% of my portfolio in a, in a stock when I start off. My, my aim is to find companies that can have outsized returns. I always begin with a similar exposure, about 10% of equity. Again, I'm, I'm a more aggressive investor. People can dial that down. So I'll begin with 10% of equity, but I have you know, many tools to help me kind of add to that as the stock is advancing. So if I believe this is a stock that could be a major winner, double, triple, whatever, 
you know, I'll start if this thing moves up seven, eight, nine, ten percent. I'll look to add more uh, if I have different uh, signals that will trigger. And so, with time, by the time I get to a forty or fifty percent concentration, I probably already have a twenty or thirty percent profit cushion. So the way my mindset works, and, and this is, I guess, a mindset thing, is I always want to protect my starting capital. So I have X amount of dollars. Uh, I want to make sure I don't grind that down. So if I'm making money. For me, it's kind of like, uh, in a sense, like this is money I can use to, uh, this is more like a risk capital. So now I have this, this open profit, this working well, I have this extra risk capital. I can use that to further concentrate my position. And when it works well, it works amazing. I mean, all of my years where I've had triple digit returns is because I was bang on a theme at the right time. I got properly exposed and the returns were big. If you're going to have a diversified portfolio, you can also have great, great returns, but you're diluting, right? I mean, there's only so many Apple. If you look back historically, there's only so many great stocks in each cycle and you want to get as much money as you can in those stocks. So how much risk you're willing to take is a question you have to ask yourself. But also, you don't have to put that risk on all at once. I mean, people often think it's an all or nothing game. I mean, you can take as much time as you want to put on that risk. You can wait for some profit to develop so you're protecting your starting capital. And, and that's my methodology for, for building concentration in what I feel is safe. I mean, I've never been knocked out because of concentration, fortunately. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that point about cycles. Uh, I, I use that line many, many times that there are no gurus, only cycles. And you know, if you've got a particular personality or approach to markets, you can't chase the cycle. The cycle kind of has to come to you. Uh, personally, I always have a, an intellectual issue with the idea that you can keep on adjusting to the current environment because that assumes you can have a perfect strategy, which you and I both know is, is not possible, mm -hmm. right? So let's talk about the current cycle for a bit here. Um, to your point, there's been a hell of a lot of chop uh, especially in the large cap averages, but there's been also, I'd argue, a lot of weakness beneath the surface. You know, percentage of stocks in the Nasdaq trading above their respective 200 moving average is like 30 percent. Small caps look awful. Um, there's there's a lot more, I would argue, uh, corrective behavior outside of the kind of headlines. But as you're trading through this environment, since you mentioned that sort of fear around choppiness, uh, what do you do? I mean, when you're in a period where it's just hard to to get any kind of real persistent trend anywhere? So that's a good question. And and I completely, uh, I mean, obviously with your, your background, I, I assume we're looking at similar things and I completely agree with you. I think the indexes are very much masking the reality of this market. And uh, that's why I, I feel this is a much more dangerous market than, than people will uh, give it credit for. I mean, yeah, if, if I had NVIDIA and that was my only position, I'm doing great. But a lot of other stuff has not been doing as great, that's for sure. Uh, so when I walk into this environment, so I'm, I'm fortunate in the sense that I, I trade my own money. That's part of like why I do it. So I, I have a lot of flexibility. And, and even when I traded other people's money, again, I always had this flexibility. So I, I always came from a different mindset than let's say a wealth manager where you need to always be exposed. So what I do when I enter these environments and I have indicators to help me kind of identify when oh, this may be chop or this is not a, a, a helpful market is I really slow myself down. I put up barriers. So I, I, I have, um, I don't run a black and white system. It's not a black box system with just fixed rules, uh, but I do have fixed guardrails. So I, I basically built up different rules where I say, you know, my the important thing is to not blow up. If you can avoid blowing up, you'll always make back periods of underperformance when things are good. So it's just the, the aim is to not blow up. So uh, I, I can put all these different layers to slow myself to taking on more exposure. So if certain rules don't trigger, I limit the max amount of exposure to the equity markets of my account. So right now, uh, because I look a lot at number of new highs versus new lows, which has been very weak, because as you mentioned, under the surface, more stocks are actually breaking down than breaking up. For me, this is an environment where unless my stocks are, are working great, that I, I shouldn't, I should have at least... 60, 70% cash. So just simple uh, guidelines for the amount to be invested in the market will uh, help you sidestep bad periods. If you're, even if you are taking some hits, but you're exposed 10, 20%, but 80% cash, you can't get too hurt. And if then after when you walk into a good environment and you're 140% invested, well, that's, that's how you can survive chop, but then after still make massive returns when things improve. So I put up barriers to trading. I slow myself down. I slow down the number of trades I take. And I try and make uh, hard and fast rules around the amount of exposure based on breadth numbers versus the general indexes. So I'm always uh, skeptical myself around the idea that anybody can be a consistently good short seller um, just because of you know the odds are against you in terms of the number of days the market tends to go higher than, than not. Um, do you find it as a as a professional trader, that it's easier to identify long positions versus short positions? 
Absolutely. And um, I, I think I think it's even beyond just statistics. I feel the general the whole market is built for things to go up. I mean, if you look at the Fed, the Fed has a two percent inflation um, goal. I know it says price stability, but price stability is zero. But they, they they tag it at two, and so if it's two and a quarter or two and a half, it's even a bit more. So if you have every year, if you think you have two percent inflation, add hopefully you know two percent productivity, you have a four percent upside bias every year that you need to have to sidestep. Um, and and you know, so I I think trying to focus on short selling is is, is very difficult. It, when it works, it works in in very small windows of opportunity. And what I don't like about short selling is that you don't have an asymmetric setup. So to me, like, you know, the core of any traders is if I'm going to risk a dollars because I want to make five. And when you're playing long, that's just, it's much more likely to have that kind of a setup because I mean, if you're shorting, the, the most you can return is a hundred unless you're employing leverage and leverage has its own risks. Uh, so I, I've always been a long side trader. It just works better with my psychology. Even, I mean, my first year trading pro was 08 in the financial crisis. And I traded long throughout all of that, and I made money. I just I just adjusted the levels at which I would decide to buy something and sidestep like really uh, um, uncertain periods. But I always focus on the long side because I, I really think the entire system is skewed that way. And uh, and so I think if you're shorting, yeah, you will get these periods where you know you look a genius because everyone likes everyone seems smarter when they can say like, oh, I, I knew there was something wrong with that company when no one else believed it. So it's kind of like um, an ego thing a little bit. And some guys are great at it and, and I give them props. That's, that's for sure. Um, but I think the easier money and uh, I want to make money, but I want to make it as easily as possible is uh, definitely through the, the long side. There's this impression, I think, on, um, on Fintwit that these accounts that have large followings of you know supposedly good traders, great traders, they're literally in front of the screen every second of the day, right? And they're tweeting on the second screen as they're watching markets. Um, uh, how focused are you in terms of just intraday movement versus kind of more daily swing? Um, I, I, I always just find it kind of interesting that people will say they don't want to get distracted during the trading day when they aren't really day trading. Well, you know, so for me, I, I kind of built the habit. I remember when I first started on the trading desk, um, the guys that I was trading with, I was trading with were guys that were from the floor. So up, up here, the floor closed a little, a little bit earlier. So uh, they were all screen guys now. And for me, that was kind of new. When I got there, because it was day trading, it was market making, people did not leave their desk from 9.30 to 4. So I, at first I was like, whoa, this is, this is really intense. I mean, like it was really nonstop. So I, I built the habit to really watch the markets all day. Even though now uh, when I put positions on, I'm not really paying attention to, to intraday charts. See, people always ask me like, oh, you know, but you check intraday to time your things a little bit better. Not really, because you know I'm not looking to trade a five-minute chart. I, I decide not to day trade anymore, so I don't do that. But I tend to always be connected with the market throughout the day. As I've uh, you know shifted strategies over time, and I focus on longer-term perspectives, I don't watch it all day. But that's by design. I mean, not that I don't watch it all day, but I don't sit fixated looking at the quotes necessarily all day. But I'll always check in at least every 15, 20 minutes, so I can get that pulse of the market. I think what is helpful about uh, if you can watch it all day, or at least definitely within regular intervals, is you keep a healthy feel for the market. So that's why typically, unless I'm really uncertain or it's a really bad market, I tend to always have at least some exposure to the market because it, it gives me that feel. And when you stop trading completely for extended periods of time, one of the negatives, I mean, one of the good things is if you can sidestep bad markets, it's great. But one of the negatives, is you start to lose that feel, that, that connection. So even though if you have a rules-based system or whatever, there's just a certain, I think, confidence that you get from being connected with the markets all the time. So I don't think it's necessary, but um, I think the more at least touch or follow with the market that you can have, the better the feel, the, the better the, the feel you'll have of conditions. Yeah, no, and I'm glad you mentioned feel and conditions. I mean, I, I've been fairly vocal on this idea that I think we're probably in a correction. I think that started around the third week of April, just given some intermarket relationships that I track. Um, but it's not a very sort of consistent dynamic. Mm-hmm. What's your feel on where we are now? You mentioned this idea that you think it's a much more dangerous environment, but do you think the next move is more likely a breakout or a breakdown? Well, you know, my thoughts are irrelevant. I'll give them for the markets to do what it wants to do. Uh, but I, I really think everyone is still fixated, fixated on inflation. I think that's the main issue because that's driving everything. Um, and it's core inflation that counts. So even today, I know they said, you know, the headline came in a little bit lower than expected. I think it was a 0.1% uh, than the expectation. But, you know, core stayed 
at five and a half percent. Core is what matters. The Fed doesn't, not that the Fed doesn't care, but the Fed will kind of say like, look, food and energy is outside our purview. If there's a shortage, if there's bad weather, we can't adjust that. If there's an invasion somewhere, we can't affect that. So really it's the core prices that's our, our purview. And if that remains sticky, that's going to force the Fed to stay sticky. So my concern is that things will stay sticky a little bit longer. And, and there's this really huge spread that's opened up between what the market expects and what the Fed is saying it's going to do. Uh, and so the market's already gone ahead and cut uh, you know, 75 basis points going into the end of the year. And so if the, and the Fed says we're not cutting, obviously depending on data. So if the Fed doesn't cut... Um, everyone kind of always looks at the Fed and says, don't fight the Fed. But what, 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 do they, what do you mean by that? Is it, you know, don't fight the federal funds rate? I don't think that's correct either. I think really it's just general financial conditions. And so right now, even if the Fed stays at five and a quarter and doesn't tighten anymore, if they stay there by year end, well, the market has to retighten uh, you know, to, to make up for this wrong expectation of these, these rate cuts. So uh, I think we're going to be. I think that the general lows we're in, which were in October of last year, uh, but I think there's still going to be a lot of back and forth. I think it's 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 a bit of a sell in May and go away type environment. I, seeing the the narrow sh- the, the the narrow strength within this market on this leg up uh, probably means we're going to at least kind of push back lower to test the lower end of the range and, and do some more shaking out. I think we need this. We need a catalyst for the market to feel like okay, the battle with inflation is over. The Fed's now our friend again. I don't think we're there yet. I mean, core stayed sticky again. You need to see core break down uh, or else if core doesn't break down, the Fed stays where it is, we're actually going to get more tightening coming into the rest of the year. So um, I lean bearish, not terribly so. I think we're going to come out of this. We we just need the right catalyst. I I think once we do come out of this, there's been such a lack of of, of opportunity, which is normal, these bears. And that really sets the stage for huge bulls. I mean, so many, there's been no IPOs. The IPO market's dried up. All these awesome companies are going to come out. We're going to get this huge potential. But I think it's a little more, going to be a little more drawn out until that's that's done. I think it's just going to be more chop. All right. So so you're in Montreal, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So I've had a few people talk about uh, the real estate housing market in Canada and mm-hmm. and it makes them as as bearish as bearish gets right so <laughs> this is obviously this is very US centric in, in our conversation but you're you're trading US equities from right. Canada right and you've got your own kind of domestic dynamics um, talk through to the audience if any of that uh, factors into your thinking right because you can't help it right i mean there's a degree of home bias in terms of emotion sentiment so you're trading US obviously there's a link between US economy and Canada but the housing market on Canada looks, uh, with the adjustable rate mortgages, looks like it could be pretty dicey. Well, that's a big, you know, um, that's another thing that's interesting with interest rates, that we need this to be fixed quickly in terms of inflation, or just how, you know, that eventually leads to kind of like a domino effect of pain. So by that, I mean, you know, SIVB Bank, uh, FRC, didn't fail in October of last year when markets were at their lowest. They failed now as rates stayed higher, and this started to uncover you know, uh, bad structural issues or, or bad bets or bad management, however you want to uh, frame it. So in Canada, uh, so in the U.S., a lot there's a lot of like 30-year fixed mortgages. So people who are have their homes with a 30-year fixed mortgage, not a big deal. Up, up here in Canada and a lot of places in the world don't have that luxury of 30-year fixed mortgages. So for people who had a uh, two and a quarter uh, mortgage, well, say that can readjust and you're sitting at six, six and a half percent. That's a, a big uh, change, especially when the real estate market up here never really broke like the, the U.S. real estate market in 08. If you kind of compare real estate prices with the U.S. and Canada, like in 08, you know, the U.S. went through the financial crisis and the housing bubble. Canada just like went sideways and then went vertical again. I, I, I'm not a housing specialist. I, I, I tend, you know, I'm in, from the, the camp of free markets and capitalism. I can't help but believe if it was easier for homes to be built, more would be built and supply would um, resolve the situation. But uh, that's a kind of a, a political issue about uh, housing and all. But definitely the issue up here, and, and, you know, maybe the U.S. doesn't have as much of a housing issue, but interest rates will affect other things with time. The longer rates stay up here, the longer debt needs to be refinanced and the pain comes. So whether that's, you know, car leases in the States, houses in Canada, uh, you know, uh, uh, debt for companies, the longer we stay here, the more pain is going to build. And that sets up the possibility of a vicious downward cycle. So that's why I'm hoping sooner rather than later, and I say sideways chop, but if inflation is sticky and they have to stay here for longer, then more and more debt rolls over at higher prices, 
then you can see quite a bit of pain come down the pipe. And um, up here for housing, it's one of those things like it's shocking. You look at it and everyone says the same thing. Even here, you look at each other like, how could they keep going up? And, and I remember thinking that 10 years ago. And every year you see it goes higher and higher and higher. And I see the stats. I mean, I know what 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 family incomes are. I mean, you know, it's it's re- it's released like anywhere else. And I don't know how the numbers work, but um, I feel like eventually it'll be an issue. But it's one of those things that just seems to be always pushed aside. Maybe this will be the straw that breaks the camel's back. I'm not sure, but uh, it's a worry for 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 a country that has so much concentration in that industry, and it's much more concentrated here in housing in general and ancillary services than the U.S. was. So. Um, uh, in a way, I think in a way, everyone hopes it doesn't break. But uh, I mean, things just can't keep growing at a compounded rate when already it's so debt driven. But if you see the sort of all that, I guess the sort of question is, does that impact your way of looking at U.S. equities or are you able to fully separate out the two? I fully separate. I trade basically just U.S. equities. I mean, I have some Canadian stuff just for like kind of retirement accounts, but all my business is U.S. equity. Uh, the reason is because especially that I trade growth, there are because there's more of a uh, broad range of, of industries and sectors and companies, it just makes more sense to, to focus on on the U.S. for that reason. It's, there's, it's more it's more dynamic. Uh, so, I mean, the local economy doesn't really impact me. I think that's one of the beauties of financial markets is you can be anywhere in the world and trade anywhere in the world, and uh, it gives everyone just this amazing flexibility. So, uh, for me, it doesn't. I, I totally like, you know separate myself psychologically from any kind of domestic uh, housing issues. So I think you're uh, maybe a little bit more ambitious than me getting the the CMT uh, with the CFA charter. Um, I got mine. <laughs> I got mine in uh, literally in 2008, so it didn't even matter. I remember back then uh, there were these stories around how uh, Goldman getting all these resumes in early 2009 would uh, have the stack of resumes, and they would just automatically throw out the top half because their uh, theory was they don't want anybody unlucky, right? Okay. To take the right? So. So, yeah, okay. the CFA didn't matter. The uh, CHR didn't matter back then. You could argue it matters more now just from a profession standpoint. But um, as you trade your own account, as you think about markets, I'm curious, um, if you were to pit two against each other, which do you find is more relevant to what you're, you're doing, the CFA charter or the CMT charter? So if I had to be an active investor, uh, definitely the CMT charter would be more important to me. I, I think for someone who's active in the markets, it's very much risk-reward driven. It's very much about, first of all, limiting your risk. That's what charts give you. I mean, people, it's always the argument, are charts predictive? Da, da, da. You know, you don't have to have something to be very predictive if at least it helps you like control your risk. That, that That's the way I kind of approach markets. So I don't necessarily use technical analysis to kind of predict what's going to happen next. It helps me to set up like a, um, a this or then type of thought process. So I see a setup and, and what I, I think is bullish. And if it fails, I know quickly that I'm wrong and I can exit. So for me, it's just a great way to set up a good risk reward dynamic. You, it's harder to do that with fundamentals. They're slower moving. It helps for big picture. So if I had to pick one, if you said, Matt, you can only use charts or only use fundamentals, I I would choose charts. I mean, for the longest time when I was day day trading and making markets, I mean, I would trade stocks with symbols. I didn't know what the company was early on. Now I obviously I'm much more thorough than that, but, um, and and I always made money trading. So I think the price action is the most important thing, especially if you're an active investor. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gayad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, I don't disagree. I mean, I think, you know, um, the thing with this this stuff is, you know, it's never clear how much it, you can argue, actually betters one's performance, right? So it's like that old joke, right? It's like, what do you call the person that graduated last from medical school? Doctor. Right. <laughs> like it doesn't, you know, but it does, I think, indicate that one is obviously serious about the profession and, and knowledgeable, at least in terms of, you know, basic, you know, things when it comes to trading. Do you find that um, when you look at social media, since you mentioned that you blew up on Twitter, you know, post 2020, 
do you find that uh, the Twitter community, the Fintu community is more educated than the average trader or maybe more misinformed? Uh, I, you know, I find retail investors today vastly more educated than they were in the past. I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't know when you first got into markets, but I mean, like I had to go to the bookstore and I remember buying Edwards and McGee, you know, technical analysis of stock trends. For like, I mean, it was like $150 because the price you saw at the bookstore is what you paid, you know, which now is like ludicrous for like learning how to draw trend lines and and see what a head and shoulders is. So I think people are are far more knowledgeable, but um, the the, the negative of of FinTwit is it builds FOMO. And so um, there's different stages to the learning curve to be a successful investor. One is is getting the knowledge. Um, The second is building the self-confidence and the consistency and the discipline, which is, is an individual thing. Um, then you start to realize at a certain point, too much knowledge is a bad thing. So, I mean, like the CMT and the CFA, like people ask me, will it make me a better trader? Uh, yes and no. It'll give you, it'll give you information. I, I, I use like a, a minute fraction of what I learned from the CMT in my day-to-day technical analysis. I mean, I'm glad I understand it all because I, I have a passion for this, but um you know, so Fintwit, then after you have to learn how to block out the noise, because uh, you know one guy has one opinion because he's looking at one time frame with one type of strategy. Someone has a completely different thing. So if you're not, um, if you don't have a strong mindset, then it'll start to make you doubt yourself. And and once your confidence is crushed in this business, you can't trade. You know, it's kind of like Top Gun. Uh, I don't know if you're the original with like uh, Tom Cruise when like, he's like the second best pilot and, and the first, you know, the best uh, Merlin. Like he. He gets up in the air and like a MiG-29 comes by and he gets scared and he, and he loses his edge. And he tells his body, you know, I, I, I can't fly anymore. I've lost my confidance. And that's what it is with the market. So there's good to fit to it that you can get more news, more education than ever before. But that doesn't, you know, eliminate the process of where you have to learn about yourself and learn how to cut away that noise at the same time. So pros and cons. Just to reset the room for everybody here for the remaining 25 minutes or so, please, everybody, make sure you follow uh, Matt Caruso on Twitter. Uh, if you're interested in, in coming up and asking questions, click that bottom left micro request button. And as always, this will be an edited podcast under Lead Lag Live on Spotify and Apple. Uh, and I'm glad you mentioned Tom Cruise because the opening song was Danger Zone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, okay, so, so um, I, I'm glad you mentioned that point about kind of needing to know yourself you know because i I always go back to too many times people focus on self-educating on basics on markets as opposed to self-educating on their own psychology it's a lot harder to know thyself than than the markets right yeah um let's talk about that for a bit in terms of just you as an individual as a as a person right how do you how do you properly assess what kind of personality you have relative to how you should be treating because you can't you know personality is very specific to one's I'd argue biological makeup. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and, and that's the thing. Uh, you're, you're, I think you're 100% right. And that's why I'll always tell people, you could sit next to someone and trade next to them every single day. You'll never trade like them. Because we all have a different, we all have different psychological makeup that, you know, it's deep, deep-rooted stuff. And so like my psychological pitfalls may be your psychological strengths and, and vice versa. And so I, I honestly think, I mean, I, all I've ever done for a living is trade. But like just seeing and speaking with other people, like. I don't know if there's any other business that will get you to know yourself more than trading. I, like if there's any weakness in your psychology anywhere, or if there's, if there's any weakness in your trading strategy, as you eventually go through a, a market cycle, it'll be exposed. Like if you're too aggressive, it'll work great in a bull market. In a bear market, you'll get killed. If you're too impatient, uh, you know, maybe that may help you in certain environments where you're, you know, you're in and out quicker than after you'll miss great opportunity or, uh, you know, so like, you really need to learn yourself. And I feel like that's something that you, you kind of grow over time and you keep learning. So if you look at Reminiscence as a Stock Operator, the classic about Jesse Livermore, that, that story, I mean, same with him. That's a, like, it's almost going to be 100 years. 1927, that book came out, like a must read for any active investor. But you can see how, as he describes his, his process, how he just changed so much and how he learned over time. Um, one thing that I found for myself it is like a recent that I found is that I, I could be kind of hyper competitive. And so I, I put a lot of pressure on myself to perform. And that's good because it'll, you know, it'll it'll probably help you to learn faster, uh, keep going in tough times because you always want to win, win, win. But then after, let's say, you know, you're going through a bit of a chop period or something, you feel like you can kind of it can spiral into more like a negative uh type of uh outcome. And so again, if kind of if there's if there's any kind of 
negative elements to your psychology whatsoever, it will come out. And so um, recently, I was, I'm a big fan of Ray Dalio. I think the guy's a genius. And I was watching some YouTube videos, and he was talking about how he meditates. And so I always try and learn from greats. I mean, if he's worth $50 billion or whatever, it's definitely something, something to learn about. And, and, and I was watching one interview with him. He was saying, you know, I credit my success to meditation. And to me, that was such a, you know, as a trader and this and that, it's like, you know, it's like a very kind of, it could be a macho type of personality. And like, and even when the way, you know, Ray Dalio speaks, you could tell he speaks with confidence. And for him to kind of say, like, I, I credit the majority of my success to meditation. I was like, what the, like, I was, I was, I was literally shocked by it. Like I just never really heard any other kind of trader speak about it that way. And so actually I've been working on that and trying to do it. I said, you know what? Hey, maybe it's another tool in my toolbox that I can have. And um, I found that it has, like he says, it brings an equanimity. It brings you, it allows you to kind of see things from a more neutral perspective. And so I think my hyper-competitiveness, uh, which can sometimes lead to like frustration and um, uh, maybe negativity because you're just like, you know, why am I not, what's, what's not working? I think being able to keep that easy mindset is a big plus. I, I think um, overall, you need to maintain that neutrality like you want to always be optimistic, but you can't be too excited. You can't be too pessimistic. If you want to execute at your best, you need to almost be a little bit like a robot. So, um, and, and even if you're, I think you're running like yourself, like a, a non-discretionary strategy, um, at, at a certain point in your drawdown, you need to keep that neutrality to say like, okay, I'm, I'm still going to keep following the system. Although maybe somewhere in the back of your mind, there's a little doubt saying like, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's like the, the, the underlying assumptions change or did something within market dynamics change? Like being able to keep that neutrality and, and always execute, but keep an open mind is really not an easy thing to do. So again, this business is always kind of working on your strategy and always working on yourself. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, and listen, all throughout last year, I was uh, con- continuously saying this environment was hell mm-hmm. right? back then in 2020. And I was saying that because I could see that, you know, in my world, the, the the premise of really all my strategies is very simple. There are certain leading indicators to volatility and that typically long duration treasuries are your your way of playing stock market volatility, right? Mm-hmm. The flight to safety dynamics. To your point, um, it's not easy, and as much as as I could see what was happening, you know, I couldn't do anything about it. Now, t- discretionary wise, sure, you can do something about it by not cha- not not trading or just switching strategies or whatever it would be. But this is, I think, you know, kind of an important point for the audience. There's a big difference between, and you've lived both worlds, trading for yourself versus you know trading from a product standpoint. Right. Yeah, absolutely, and that's a big strength, I think, to the individual that they they can have that flexibility. Um, but I, I, but you know, um, just even trading for a living, like what I do, like a lot of people say like, oh man, that's a dream. Like, I wish I could do that. Um, yeah. When it works, works great. There's no better job. I mean, total flexibility, total freedom, like uh, huge potential upside. Um, but you have to, yeah, it's very hard to explain, to articulate to someone who hasn't done it, the psychological pitfalls that come around. I mean, and for anyone, even for for those who do this professionally, like this is this is my 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 life, or for someone doing it on the side with another source of income or another job, like the pressures, even like for yourself that you feel to perform, there's always this performance pressure that is always there, and and obviously you need to perform, but you know you can't let that pressure then sidetrack from your ability to execute or think clearly. And this is why I think there's so many times you'll hear like it's a never-ending story of like, wow, look at this great trader. Then boom, he blew up and now he's washed out. And and the natural thing is like, how the heck could that happen? You know, and, and I really think it's like a vicious psychological downturn that someone takes that can't quite get themselves out of it. Um, and that's painful. So that, that's why I, I think so much of this business, so much is psychological. Um, and it's something that's so hard to teach. I can tell you like, oh, this is the stuff you're going to go through, but 
it's like telling someone to work out, you know, like let's say Arnold Schwarzenegger sits down with you and he says, Hey, look, you know, you want to be ripped like I was when I was Mr. Olympia, like follow these steps. This is how you're going to feel. And you say, okay, on paper, right? I got his workout routine and I'm going to feel tired and I'm going to feel this, like go through that <laughs> step through that every day, every day. And it's, it's a different, uh, it's a different type of thing. So, uh, the psychology in this business is just a key part. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about just from a, uh, execution perspective for you. Um, every trader's got their sort of favorite indicators or favorite ways of looking at individual stocks and, and positions. Um, what are some of the the signals that you tend to focus the most on? Well, for market direction, uh, like the net highs, net lows has been really a critical thing for me. So it's just basically looking at the last 52 weeks. So the past year, number of stocks today making new 52-week highs versus stocks making new 52-week lows. I think it's such an important indicator because, you know, there's other ways you can you can run breadth analysis. You could look at advancers versus decliners and draw a line, look for divergences. The reason I like 52 weeks highs and lows, again, every tool you use, you really want to be specific to your strategy. I, I think going back to what you said before is, again, another really critical thing where you were saying, you know, these people say they just switch strategy and they're always in the right place at the right time. I, I don't think that's possible. I mean, I've ran, I've run, I ran multiple strategies and the reason I just do one now is because, like, you know, I want to. If you want to be great at something, you got to put your full effort. And so I, I noticed that, you know, wherever I put most of my effort, I had the best return. So this is what I want to do. And most legends run one strategy. I never heard of like legends running ten strategies at once. Um, but the net highs and net lows. The reason I think it's so great for growth investing is to make a new fifty-two week high. It's an important event. So the advanced decline line maybe is good for general market analysis to see how things are trending. But you know, an advance or a decline is not a significant event. Any day you're up or down, it's not just any day you're making a new 52-week high. For the stock to be at a 52-week high, there had to be a, a collective group of investors saying, look, we're, we like the stock so much, we're willing to pay a higher price now than anyone has paid over the past year, which is a more significant event. So if you're in a bull market with, with broad participation and you want to find these stocks that are having the outsized moves – in general, you want to see investors as a group willing to pay more than they have a year ago. So what's been so kind of uh, odd about this market as we're kind of been moving up here in, in 2023 is we've had net lows the entire time. So despite indexes trying to climb, you have more stocks constantly breaking down to new 52-week lows. So there's actually more distribution. So for me, this has just been a great tool for me to kind of look past the trend of prices as an index, because indexes are you know market cap weighted, can be very deceiving. And even looking past the direction of advancers, decliners, but looking at where is the actual period, like the real progress in terms of stocks breaking to the upside and breaking to the downside. So seeing this environment where more stocks are breaking down, if you look at every good uptrend uh, in, 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 I don't know, go far as far back as you want, good uptrend where there's broad participation, where where there's, it's a risk on, where people are looking for speculative investments that are going to go up 50, 60, 80, 100, 200% and more. It's with the backdrop of more stocks breaking to the upside because you have a healthy general uh, environment. So for me, that tool, that it's such a simple tool. And again, all like the CMT, going back to the CMT, you can learn a million tools, uh, but... I think it's kind of like you know, a soldier. You know, you want to you want to know your, uh, your your tools very well before you go into battle, so you can really understand how they're going to function, how they're going to operate, and it gives you better insight. So for me, that's been a really important tool. It's helped me to avoid so much chop this year, and it's helped me to avoid the bear market of last year. And yeah, you know, to your point, there's there's tons of tools that look great but <clears throat> don't really you know cut right for lack of a better way of saying it. So. Um, how do you identify aside from just kind of <clears throat> looking at breadth? Um, how do you identify what doesn't work when you're trading an individual security. I mean, I, I, listen, I, I, when you mentioned uh, Edwards McGee, I smiled because that was one of the first books <laughs> I also read. You know, it's like, and my father was big on having these kind of old school tomes, so he actually had the original 1948. Oh, wow. nice! It's like old, page, you know, tattered the pages. <laughs> but, um, but there, you know, in truth, there's a lot of stuff from Edwards and McGee that was also, you know, with the benefit of, of hindsight and backtesting, was. It's just not valid. It was I'd say bullshit, but mm -hmm. you know they didn't know it was bullshit. But when you test a lot of these things, it doesn't really have predictive power. So how do you how do you go about even figuring out what works and what doesn't? You know, to be honest, uh, a lot of it was trial and error over the years. Um, but you know, I, I think you know what's important is you know if someone was asking me recently, they saw an article about how ChatGPT like built a strategy that's like doing better than the indexes or this and that. You know, like. What makes trading difficult is you can't just go back and look at what worked best because that's data mining. So you're going to have biased answers. So I can, I can pick you the best combination of moving averages last year 
uh, even despite a bad market would have made you a fortune. Is it going to work this year? No, probably not. Cause you're, you're, you're just like you're data mining and, and you're not finding true knowledge you want in the market. You're much better off with something that's robust that will work in many different environments. Even if it's not optimal, it's not the best tool in the world. It, someone will probably outperform you, but you're not going to blow up and you're likely to continue to be able to pull money out. So for me, um, that over time is what's become really important to me. And a big part of that is your own portfolio management skills. So beyond the tools, uh, and, and if you listen to some of the greats like Stanley Druckenmiller, you know, George Soros and that, uh, Paul Tudor Jones, it's like, you know, the old thing with Stanley Druckenmiller, you know, you have to know when to go for the jugular, when to go really aggressive. If you're, if you're not like, you know, uh, like closet index and you're just trying to slightly beat an index, you're just looking for outsized returns. Again, everyone's objective is different then I, I think a big part of it even transcends your technical analysis tools or your fundamental analysis tools is how do you put the positions on? How do you concentrate? Even position sizing. I mean, mathematically, um, your your strategy will have an optimal position size. If you go bigger than that, you don't end up with more returns. You end up with worse returns because then after your drawdown you know, is, is not made up for by, um, by, by rallies in your equity curve. So a lot of it, I think, you're saying like, you know, how do you know what doesn't work? It was just kind of over time for myself with the strategy, seeing which tools were most robust, which was a consistent indicator of what I needed it to show me uh, a lot of study. And then a big part as well was like building myself, building my strategy for what worked for me and the portfolio management side of things, I think is just really critical that, that really, so again, it's not about being the best. It's about being the most robust and likely to um, succeed over time. Talk to the audience about, um, your website, the kind of research that you're putting out. First of all, what, what got you to want to go beyond just you know trading to actually trying to you know educate and put a researchers out there? So you know, uh, there's a CMT association, obviously, and and uh, there's the Canadian Society for Technical Analysts up here in Canada. So years ago, when I found Edwards and McGee, I was hooked. Like I was I was obsessed with charting and technical analysis. So I started going to the local chapter uh, meetings, and and uh, there's a strong relationship with CSTA and CMT. I ultimately became the president of the CSTA, uh, the Canadian Society of Technical Analysts. And um, interestingly enough, because I was a president and I was a CMT charter holder, after I had graduated from fi- uh, from economics uh, here, I was, I think, 22 or years old, I was asked by the school to kind of teach an undergrad class in, in you know around technical analysis. So I, I built Canada's, I, I co-created Canada's first technical analysis-based uh, accredited uh, course called How to Build a Profitable Trading System Using Technical Analysis. And so I was trading full time and I would, I would teach a class once a week at night. And I just, I really, I've always enjoyed teaching. I love markets so much. Uh, and so I enjoy teaching. It was a undergrad finance class. Ultimately, I got a bit tired of one after a, rough, a trading day having to go and te- teach. But the real part that annoyed me was, um, you know, you're putting all this effort. And I have to bring so much to these lectures. And then students would kind of come to me and say like, oh, you know, I got a B plus. Can I please have an A minus? And you know, when you're younger and you're maybe naive, you say, oh, okay, maybe it was, I'll, I'll take it. And if you do it for one student, then there's like 30 students waiting saying, hey, how come you gave him an A minus from a B plus and not me? So I kind of got tired of the, uh, the, um, that dynamic. Uh, but now years later, as I, I kind of grew a following on social media and so many people, you know, again, there's, there's so much fake on FinTwit. That's one of the negatives. And so many people who don't actually trade and don't know what they're talking about, but they're really good at running a Twitter account. Uh, they, you know, I kind of got to a point where I said, man, this is just so much junk. And there are people who really do want to authentically learn. Like, I mean, like I was, you know, so I said, okay, let me put together a course and that did really well. People loved it. Uh, I have like a five-star review, which I was, you know, pleasantly surprised to see. And then after kind of a natural thing, people say, you know, I loved your course, but man, like, what are you doing now in the market? So I, and they want me to start kind of like a recurring type of education. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll start something where I kind of just speak to what I'm doing in the market each week. So I, I do a video call twice a week. I do like a daily update, uh, I tie that together with education and uh, my, what I see in the market. And it kind of, it really kind of just grew of its own momentum, uh, but I'm happy I started it. And I'm actually, it's kind of even now spearheaded into a large research project that I'm, I'm building on. So it's kind of, I've always had an entrepreneurial streak. It's allowed me to kind of just kind of grow alongside uh, my passion for markets. Yeah, I would, <clears throat> I would share that, uh, that mindset. I mean, uh, I've got the research, which is the lead lag report, um, and the two don't necessarily overlap, uh, but there is something uh, nice about kind of putting work out there and showing it to others and hopefully having it help others. I think, um, yeah, I myself, I'm not a big fan of sort of saying, you know, here's a buy and sell, mm-hmm. right? It's more about dynamics, conditions, a different kind of framework. But, you know, there's a real joy to trying to help 
others. Um, and, you know, ideally, hopefully helping yourself because feedback is also one way to get you to self-learn more. Mm-hmm. I agree. And, you know, it's it's kind of a shame. Like a lot of the trading desks have gone away. At least, you know, like like I said, when I started, I had like a really wide opportunity set. I could do whatever I wanted as long as I was within risk protocols. You know, they ended up closing the desk here for like risk reasons. The banks here are not nearly as um, uh, aggressive as, uh, let's say, the U.S. operations. And so then we had like a small office, a few guys still traded, but then COVID hit. And it's just like, you know, I love trading, but kind of just trading on your own after a while can get a little quiet. So it it is nice to still be able to kind of interact with people and communicate. And, um, you know, that's one of the the nice, really nice benefits that I've I've really enjoyed as well. Uh, Matt, aside from Twitter, uh, how else do people find you? Uh, I'm on YouTube, Caruso Insights. You can also just search up Matt Caruso. I have a Substack, which I... um, I was trying to, you know, uh, write more often before I've slowed down a little bit with these bad markets, but really Twitter, uh, Substack and YouTube are the best places to follow me along on my website, uh, Caruso Insights. That's a, a good place to wrap this Twitter space up, folks. Please make sure you follow Matt. I've got a couple more Twitter spaces today and hopefully I'll see you all later. Thank you, Matt. Really do appreciate it. Yeah. Pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to meet you, Mike. Likewise. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.